How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, that'll give you the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with God. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening to study your word, to reflect upon what it means, what happened in the original context so many centuries ago, and the implications that has, what you are teaching that relate to spiritual life, relate to uh, different areas of uh, politics, government. And Father, help us to think through what what this text is saying, what it's teaching, and that we might conform our thinking to what your word says. And, Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We pray for that you would raise up leaders who are focused on biblical principles that will provide uh, stability and security for this nation and that we can move past uh, many of the policies that have been so destructive over the last, uh, last several years. Father, we're also thankful for a good report on Hunter Mitchell and that he is uh, going through his treatment fine, and we pray that you'd continue to uh, strengthen him and and, uh, restore his health and that he'd be responsive to all the medication. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. I think we might get there tonight. We started sort of an introduction last time. And the reason I took, I'm taking this time back is for a couple of reasons. Number one, we need to go back and, and pick up context. We need to understand what the flow is in, in the scripture. I think that we have lived in a context, and I don't mean we in a narrow sense, but I mean we as American evangelicals have lived in a general context for at least the last hundred years where people have lost the, the flow and structure of, of, of biblical knowledge. And that is, is pretty devastating. And so we, I, one of the things I try to do is constantly remind all of us of the basic, the basic issues, the basic events that have taken place uh, within the structure of, of the Bible so that we understand these, these data. Now, I put a slide in here, and I think I put it in the wrong place, so let me go... Uh, dig it up here just a minute. Here we go. Um, This is a quote I ran across in a book that I recommend uh, to you for uh, stimulation of your thought processes about what's going on on in this country. It's called The State of the American Mind, and it is edited by Mark Bauerlein and Adam Bellow. If you know Saul Bellow, as an author, this is his son. It's called The State of the American Mind. And there's a, each chapter is written by a different author, and they bring out a lot of different points. I'm going to quote to it from it tonight a couple of times uh, just as we, as we go forward. But this quote 
is from the introduction by Edie Hirsch, Jr. I first became acquainted with him back when I was in seminary because I think the first book he wrote was called Validity in Interpretation, which is not about biblical interpretation at all. It's talking about how you interpret anything. He's a literature professor, Ph.D. in English literature, and uh, this was excellent fact. Dr. Elliot Johnson, who spoke at the Chafer Conference here two or three years ago, uh, who's taught advanced hermeneutics at Dallas Seminary uh, since uh, mid-70s, about the time that, that I was a student, has used that as a required textbook to teach principles of hermeneutics and, and, uh, and interpretation. But he also became very well known by a lot of people because in the mid-80s, I think in 87, he published a book called Cultural Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know. And he was going completely against the flow of the culture because his idea is that, and, and as he states it, since the 30s, the idea was in education was more and more that we need to teach uh, students how to be critical thinkers and how to uh, do process rather than teaching them a, a, a breadth of just general knowledge. And, and so he makes this, this statement. He says, background knowledge, that is general facts, information, memorizing dates and people and events, that's what he means by general facts, is essential to educational performance. And in his book, Cultural Literacy, and then in this chapter, he backs this up with a lot of statistics. So he's just talking about education in general. If you're going to have children that are going to be able to perform well on exams, they need to know general facts. And your your kids that come up through through uh, elementary school and, and middle school and high school today in public school aren't taught facts. You can ask them, what happened in 1776? And they don't know. What happened in, in 1620? And they don't know. Who are, the, who are the Puritans? They don't know. They just don't know general facts. And he recognized the principle that critical thinking skills and abstract reasoning are based on a a, a prior knowledge of general data. Okay, and I ran across this quote. It says, background knowledge of general facts is essential to educational performance. Abstract skills falter without a foundation of content supporting them. This is what needs to be done to produce more competent Americans. Now, that's a great quote. It's a great quote for education. If you're a homeschooler, we've got homeschoolers. I know I have homeschoolers who listen. If you're a homeschooler, you really need to, this is something you need to pay attention about. I highly recommend this book. But I want you to think about this not just in a general sense of education, but think of it in terms of biblical education, Christian education. What he's saying is that, that you don't need to focus on just knowing doctrine or theological reasoning. Not that the, he's not saying critical thinking skills are not important. But if you don't have that secondary to a knowledge of biblical data, biblical facts, if you don't know who people are, if you don't know the difference between Ahimelech and Abimelech, between Mephibosheth and Mehershalal Hashbaz and Peter and Philip, and if you don't know the difference between um, uh, Syria and Damascus, the Philistines and the Canaanites, if you don't know the basic data, if you don't know who Jesus is, Mary, Joseph, Saul, David, Abraham, and when they lived and the dates they lived, then then I, I'm telling you, the doctrine that you learn 
is going to be hanging there in in limbo. It, it's like hanging in a vacuum because you don't have the coat hangers to organize your closet. What happens if you if you went into your closet, you took the coat hangers out? That's the general data of history and data of the Bible. If you took the coat hangers out and put your clothes in there, what would it look like? Now you have yeah, that's right, a big mess. And you have all this doctrine, this abstract reasoning in there. But if you don't have the biblical structure to organize it then it's going to all end up on the floor and it's really not going to do you a lot of good. And I tell you, I have seen so many Christians and so many different, from so many different backgrounds who just don't know biblical data and they're taught maybe a lot of good principles, but God didn't give us the Bible so you could just principalize it. It's not an abstract theology. It is, we're supposed to know the Bible. Jesus used the Bible when he's reacting to Satan in the wilderness. He doesn't quote the theology of temptation point five, six, and 7. He quotes Scripture. And that's important. And in other places, we're going to see this this Sunday in, in Matthew 6, 16, that when God appears to Jesus and he's got Peter and James and John with him up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and, and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. There's this, that, he's basically paraphrasing scripture. God quotes himself. Now, if you think God quotes himself, maybe we ought to quote him too. And, and remember, we need to know that, that basic data. And so I would, I would paraphrase what, what Hirsch says here is that basic general facts about the Bible are essential to educational performance. If you want to perform well as a, as a student of the word, then you need to know general content. Abstract skills, that would be problem-solving. Let's bring it right down to what we're talking about in this passage. Problem-solving skills in life uh, falter without a foundation of content to support them. This is what it needs to, needs to be done to produce more competent Christians. You like that? Read that this morning, and that, that was very significant to read that. So we need to know the Word. So this is one reason why I'm taking time to go back, because we, we've got to understand, as I pointed out last time, First Samuel 1 through 3, we're introduced to Samuel and his significant, because he's going to be the human change agent that God uses to bring about this, this vastly needed change. That, that Israel needs because they're just mired uh, in this, this horrible uh, moral relativism, a, a death spiral of moral relativism that is, that is fragmenting their culture and enslaving them to, to sin, but it's going to end up enslaving them once again, once again to, to the Philistines. And God's going to change all this. So 1 through 3 sets us up with that introduction, but 4 through 8 gives us an understanding of how God has got to change Israel's thinking. They're still operating on spiritual, moral arrogance and negative volition, and they are looking everywhere but to God to sustain them. They don't understand that God and God alone is necessary to sustain them. And so we, we see a great example uh, of, of a great illustration of James 1, 2 through 4, God's training process through testing, and what we're getting ready to study in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 6, 7, 8, and 9. And all those go together. So it's interesting how in, uh, in sort of God's providence, we're hitting these things that, that correlate to each other in the different studies from Matthew to 
to, to Samuel on Tuesday night and, and Peter on on uh, on Thursday night. People listen to this via the uh, just go back and listen to different studies independently. Sometimes miss how these connections come together for the for the folks who who are sitting here. So that's what what I'm doing is setting this up because we have to have a make sure we have a good biblical framework for understanding why this information is given to us. There's probably 10 gazillion other pieces of data and other things that happened in Israel at this particular time that God chose not to tell us about. Why did he choose to restrict the information that he recorded for eternity to just these events? And that's because it's sufficient for helping us understand the, the spiritual and moral dynamics related to the success and failure uh, of Israel or any culture at, at this particular time. So last time I went through various things in the background of the Old Testament. This time I want to look at this timeline. And these are dates that everyone ought to, some basic dates that everyone ought to know for structuring uh, Old Testament. And I want to make a point out of all of this because dates aren't there just so you know dates and people aren't there just so you know people, but so they organize the lessons around those people, uh, places, and events. The first date that's up there uh, is probably the most significant date for Israel's history, and that's 1446 B.C. This is the date of the, of the, uh, of the Exodus. Uh, when Israel is redeemed from Egypt. We talk about this all the time. It's, at, from this point on, it's probably the most often uh, referred to event uh, in, in the Old Testament. So much subsequent doctrine is built upon an understanding of what takes place in, in Exodus, and, of course, Leviticus is part of that because Leviticus describes the ritual law that, that was given to Moses, but also uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy describe what happened to that generation, and then we get on into the conquest after that. But So 1446 is important. This is the, the exodus. Israel's redeemed from Egypt. And theoretically, I, this is plan A. God has various plans for us, he has adapted to our negative volition. So much of us are not living on plan A. We haven't lived on plan A since five seconds after we got saved. We're on about plan Z squared, cubed. We're, we're way out there in, in terms of numbers, but this is God's plan A. He redeems Israel. He takes them to Mount Sinai. He gives them the law. He tells them he's going to dwell uh, dwell in their midst, and that's what he did. Here's a picture uh, drawn of the of the twelve tribes of Israel as they camp surrounding the tabernacle in the middle. God is in the middle, the center of of, of Israel's existence. And so, 1446, God gives them the law. They leave Mount Sinai in 1447, and according to God's plan A, they were going to march right into Canaan. They were going to wipe out the Canaanites. God was going to give them the land, and they were they were just this far from having the Messiah come and the kingdom come. If they had been obedient, guess what happened? They were not obedient. This is the second date, 1406 B.C. 1406 B.C., well, before we get there, uh, I went back and looked at this, and I said, okay, the, 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 the thing that happened related to 1446 was the failure uh, that took place when 
Uh, Israel was on the border of the land, and what happened? They sent the spies in. Moses sent them in, and there were only uh, there were only two spies that came back and said, "We can do this." The other spy says, "We can't do it. There's just too many people. There are giants in the land, and they've got fortified cities, and we can't do this." Uh, the circumstances were were way too much, and so. Uh, God said, okay, nobody's going to go into the land except the two that would trust me, so we're going to go from plan A to plan B. And and um, a couple of questions just to check your, I talked about biblical knowledge. Where did that take place? Kadesh Barnea, very good. You can't answer anymore, John. You're, you're in seminary. You don't count. You've got an edge. Where were the two spies? Who were the two spies who were allowed to enter the land? That's right, Caleb and... Joshua, bonus points, name the book in the chapter where that's described. Can anybody name the book? Numbers. Numbers. I don't know who said that, but you're right. Numbers. Anybody know the chapter? Here's a way to remember it. No. It's an unlucky number. 13. Numbers 13. That's how I always remember that. Numbers 13. Okay, so... Uh, they went to Plan B. Plan B took place in 1406. After 40 years of wandering in the desert, God took out everybody except for Caleb and Joshua. And even Moses and Aaron had sinned in the wilderness, and God disciplined them and wouldn't allow them to go into the land. They didn't lose their salvation. They just weren't allowed to experience that additional blessing of God because of, because of disobedience. So they were operating on Plan B. And they had to go into the land. Here's another question. What's the first city that they conquered? Jericho. Jericho, right. What book of the Bible is that found in? I heard somebody say it. Joshua. That's right. It's found in Joshua. They went to, uh, they went to Jericho, and they conquered Jericho. They conquered Ai. And then things began to fall apart. They had a couple of other conquests. They defeated the kings in the north, a, co- a confederacy of kings in the north, and then a confederacy of kings in the south. And then they were given their tribal allotments, and each tribe was sent to their tribal allotment to clean it up. And something happened along the way. They started compromising. They didn't quite like, you know, most of us wouldn't like the idea that we have to go in there and annihilate every man, woman, child, and baby and all the livestock because God didn't want them to build a culture on the foundation of the carnality and the paganism of the Canaanites that preceded them. So it's like the the Canaanites were given 400 years to turn back to God, and they refused to do it. So God extended a lot of grace to them for 400 years, and God said, okay, it's obvious you don't want to have anything to do with me, so you're you're, you're just a blight, you're a cancer, you're a malignant tumor, on uh, in, in humanity, and in order to preserve humanity, we've got to have a little surgical uh, removal of the tumor. And so we're going to kill all the Canaanites. But Israel didn't do that. So they, didn't, they weren't allowed to, to take all of the land. They never took all the land. So now they're on to what? Plan C. See, sound familiar? Just like our lives. We don't fully obey God, so we get down through uh, plan C, D, E, or F. And this is what happened. In, in 1380, that's under plan C, 
The next generation comes in, but they compromise until it gets to the point where the tribe of Dan isn't even able to settle anywhere in their tribal allotment because they can't defeat any of the Canaanites because they've compromised. And of course, the spiritual lesson is, is spiritual compromise leads to spiritual defeat. And as, to the degree that we're compromising with the world, to that degree, we're never going to have spiritual victory uh, vi- spiritual victory in our lives. So the danger is always this assimilation. Now, what book describes that biblical death, that, um, excuse me, that, that spiritual death spiral? Spiral is a key word, or cycle. Judges, very good. You're taught well. Okay, so they go through this whole spiritual death spiral in the book, book of Judges, and that goes from takes you all the way uh, takes us all the way down to just about where we are in First Samuel. We're not quite to 1050. We're probably around 1090 or 1080, some somewhere in there. But then we're, they're, they're going to get to this point in 1050, and uh, they've gone through Plan A, Plan B, Plan C. And if we were really honest, we'd go with each judge Plan D, E, F, G, H, I, and now they're on J. But we'll just keep it simple and go to plan D. God always meets us where we are. God doesn't say, okay, we're on plan X. Forget it, buddy. No, God always forgives us and brings us back. He meets us where we are, which is a great lesson in grace. But in 1050, what happens is they come to Samuel as he's getting old and say, well, we don't know who's going to rule us next instead of trusting God to provide somebody. They say, we're not, we, we don't trust uh, we, we don't like your kids. We don't want them run, ruling over us. So we want to have a king. But what they say is we want to have a king like everybody else. We don't, we don't want to have a godly king. We want to have a king like everybody else. And so they go to plan D. And this is pretty far from God's, God's plan for them. Now, God had always planned to give them a king. But what God does here is he says, you don't really want me. You've rejected me for the last uh, 350 years, and now we have to go to, uh, uh, you have to learn a couple of lessons before I can give you the king that I always intended to give you. You want a king like everybody else, so I'm going to give you a king after man's heart, and he gives him Saul. He looks like a king. He talks like a king. He carries himself. He's head and shoulders taller than everybody else. I've got to go back, and one of the things I've got to look at, there's some debate over just how tall Goliath was. And there's some some strong scholarly arguments that suggest he was shorter than what they say. But Saul is presented as being pretty tall based on the the size and remains of of corpses from this period. The average Israelite was about five six. Well, if Saul is head and shoulders above everybody, that would make him pretty close to six three or six four. And the modern contention is that 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 Goliath based upon the size of the cubit and other things they come up with, probably wasn't more than 6'9 or 6'10. But that's not that big if you're 6'3 or 6'4, if you're Saul. So I have some problems with that. But when we get there, we'll go into all those different issues. But they get Saul because he looks like a king. He sounds like a king. He's, he's going to be good. And he's just a spiritual mess. He's a believer, but he is in moral rebellion, just like the people are. They get a king that's after their heart. 
He, he reflects their values. They get the leader they deserve. We have the leader we deserve right now because he reflects American culture. We often have been given the leaders we deserve, some good, some bad, because of our uh, moral failure. So in, in 1050, they go to plan, plan D, and then plan E is further down the road when you get to David, his desire to build a temple. And, and David expands the kingdom, but David compromises a lot. So David is never allowed full control of the land that God was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you're down to plan E. And then Solomon is going to build uh, build a temple, and Solomon's given uh, great rich, riches, and things perhaps could have gone a different direction. But Solomon compromises, and he violates the law like David did. He takes numerous wives, but he takes foreign wives who come and influence him into idolatry. And the last part of his reign is marked by spiritual apostasy and idolatry. And the result of it is now the kingdom is going to be split in two. God's going to discipline them through civil war and a tax rebellion. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse because they don't trust in the sufficiency of God to solve their problems. And that's the same thing that happens in our spiritual life. Every time we fail, we go from plan A to plan B to plan C to plan D, ad infinitum, until we're so far down the chain we we can't see the beginning because uh, so many steps have gone by. Now... As we go through this, now I could carry this all the way through the end of the Old Testament with the captivity and the restoration and then on into the New Testament, but I think you, you get the, the point. This demonstrates the cycle of history. Sin brings judgment, uh, either through self-induced destruction or additional compound discipline through additional divine judgment. But the message through all of this is God's grace. God's grace always meets us where we are. He's got a plan and a blueprint for our lives, and every time we mess up, God meets us in grace. If we turn back to him, there's cleansing, there's forgiveness, and there's, uh, there's restoration. But unfortunately, God doesn't always clean up the mess. And so after we make bad decisions, there are further consequences that come into our lives that are the result of our own making. And we may spend the rest of our lives just trying to clean up the mess that that is our own fault because of bad decisions we made when we were 13, 14, 16, 18, 20, 30, 40, or whatever the age was. Now, a couple of things to remember here is that in 1 Samuel 2 through 4, as I pointed out in the... As I pointed out in the outline, is God is beginning to deal with the nation to bring them back to a place of blessing. But God's not just going to give them the gift. You know, Calvinists would say, well, God gave them the gift of repentance or the gift of faith. That's not what happens here. God continues to bring negative consequences in their life until he can bring them to a point where they recognize there's no other option but to trust in him and him alone. Now, I know none of you have had that happen in your life. But every now and then, people still go through that same process where God closes off every door because we get to the point where we just can't learn the lesson of God's sufficient grace on our own. So a couple of principles to remind you of. First of all, it's God's grace initiative to restore them to blessing. God is always initiating towards us as believers. 
It is his desire for us to recover and be restored. It is not his desire to keep us in negative circumstances, in, in, in destructive circumstances, or to just keep us under discipline. But if we're going to be rebellious, then that's what he's going to do. His goal is always restoration and maturity, taking us uh, towards maturity. Second principle we see here is that God doesn't do this apart from human volition. God's not going to bring them back to blessing unless they decide that they're going to start trusting him. They have to make a decision to quit being disobedient and move to the place of obedience. And this is known as repentance. It's changing directions, turning back towards God. And God uses the positive believers. And we've seen that in this chapter. He uses Hannah, who's just this inconsequential uh, wife of, uh, of Elkanah down in a small town of Ramah, north of Jerusalem. There's nothing significant about her except for her faith in God. He uses what appears to the world to be insignificant people. And he use, then he uses uh, Samuel. And he uses this unnamed man of God to announce his judgment against the house of Eli at the end of chapter 2. And that shows that there is a remnant there in Israel. Now, the third thing we see is that God uses even the apostate priesthood to bring about his purposes. In spite of their negative volition and their attempts to eradicate the law and a holy God from Israel through their uh, assimilation to paganism, their syncretism, their ecumenicalism, uh, they're operating like pagans, and despite that, God still uses them. And God still uses a lot of Christians in carnality. He uses, you, you know people like this. Some of you are married to them. Some of you uh, were their children. Some of you have children like this. And they're so rebellious against God, but they give you an opportunity to learn how to love people who are not very lovely. They give you an opportunity to learn how to forgive. They give you an opportunity to to learn how to evangelize or to uh, explain the gospel. They give you tremendous opportunities to demonstrate grace orientation and humility. And God uses those rebellious believers and uh, in, in our lives to teach us how to grow and mature. So God uses even the those who are apostate and those who are uh, rebellious for his purposes. A fourth thing we see here is that God shows this standard pat, a pattern all through history that there's grace before judgment. What we're seeing in chapter 4 is going to be a harsh judgment on Israel. God is going to defeat them in a, a, a battle through the Philistines. The ark is going to be captured. God's going to be kidnapped and taken off to uh, Philistia. And people are just devastated. It, 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 it's one of the worst defeats spiritually, morally, and physically in all of Israel's, Israel's history. But before it happened, God gave them grace. All these years that intervened between chapter 3 and chapter 4 as Samuel is growing up, God is blessing him. He, the word is being taught in Israel, but they're, they're really not, not responding. So we see the principle of grace before judgment. Then judgment comes to cleanse the sin and the disobedience and the carnality. And then God gives them undeserved blessing. And we see that same pattern in our lives. We go through times when we, we, we sin and God gives us grace. He overlooks the sin, and then when we don't recover, when we don't respond, 
then God brings judgment and discipline into our lives so that we're forced to trust in Him, to trust His sufficiency, and we either turn back to Him or we bow the neck and we're stubborn and we continue in our recalcitrant, arrogant ways. And then, but if we turn, then God is going to graciously forgive us and cleanse us and, and bless us. So all of this takes time. It take, took years in, in the life of Israel, and it'll take years even in this nation. It doesn't change, uh, change overnight. And then the fifth thing is that we see that God had designed a plan for the nation that his presence was going to be uniquely in their midst, and the tabernacle would be at the center of the nation with the ark of his presence in the center of the, uh, uh, of the tabernacle and that God's unique presence was there. That's comparable to the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in the life of of every believer. But the people rejected that. They rejected plan A, B, and C, and the result is that they lost the presence of God. Now, we can't lose the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, but in carnality, we can lose a lot that God, God has provided for us. So they, um, they lose the presence of God, uh, as it was at the tabernacle in Shiloh for over 300 years, and God's presence never goes back to Shiloh. That the, we'll go through the travels of the ark as they're taken from one place to another, but we go through that, and, um, eventually David is going to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, and Solomon's going to build the temple, But the presence of God is never again quite what it was initially. Every time we go through these these bouts of carnality, there are consequences, and there were consequences in the life of Israel. But God at each point meets them with grace. So we have to be reminded that it doesn't matter how many times or how seriously we apostatize, how seriously we fail, God's grace is always there to lift us up, to restore us, to... Uh, heal us, and to continue to work positively in conforming us to the image of his son so that if we're still alive, there's still a plan for our life. And we shouldn't judge others because we see their their failures and some people's failures are right out there for everybody to see and other people's failures are maybe much worse. But because they're in the realm of mental attitude sins, they're covered up and they're not exposed to uh, the the sight of everybody else. Okay, so let's go one more step into our uh, introduction as we get into the the chapter. What's going on here is that there is a, uh, a shift of focus. There's been this shift of focus in the history of Israel away from God and away from divine viewpoint to the things that are, and the things that are associated, uh, excuse me, they shift away from God and divine viewpoint to the secondary things that are associated with him. And that means that those secondary things replace God. So that those secondary things, which are good, like the Ark of the Covenant, replaces God. So what happens at the beginning here is they're going to make a good luck charm out of the Ark of the Covenant. And we do the same thing. We think, well, I go to Bible class all the time, so God ought to bless me. See, we've made an activity something that is that replaces God. We think that we go through certain... Look at all my, my notes. Look at all, all my doctrinal notes. 
And certain things replace the relationship of God. That is the nature of our carnality. We constantly seek to to replace things. And this is a trap that Satan sets up for. We saw a great example of this just Sunday, didn't we? One moment, Peter is there. Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And he says, You're, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then he's praised by Jesus, and then Jesus says uh, that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem where he's going to be uh, where he's going to be tortured by the priests and the, uh, the, the, the religious leaders, and then he's going to d- die and be buried and rise from the dead. They de- don't hear that right. They don't hear the end. They just hear the beginning. He says, no, no, that doesn't fit our idea of the Messiah. And, and Peter took him aside and, and out of pure human viewpoint tries to straighten out God. And see, he's putting the emphasis on something that's true, the glorious reign of the Messiah, but by putting his emphasis on something that is true at the expense of a greater truth, which is the Messiah had to first come and suffer, he shifted into human viewpoint and idolatry, and Jesus condemns him and says, Get behind me, Satan. We slip into those kinds of patterns all the time because it's really hard for us to cling to the sufficiency of God and his sufficient knowledge that he really does know what's best and his his plan really is uh, what's best. And the sin, our sin nature is great at camouflaging our human viewpoint rationalizations and justification and to make them sound like they are so biblical and righteous. And this is the history of legalism down through the, the 2,000 years uh, of church history. And the result is that it's difficult for us to cling to faith alone. We've always got to help God out. We always have to add something. And faith alone in the promise of God is the sufficiency of God's word. But we always have to have faith plus something else. I can trust in God, but I've got to add something. And we're, we're good at this. And when this happens, when we're not depending upon God alone, when he's not the only basis of our hope, then we are going to have trouble. And this frequently happens when we go into some kind of a crisis. We have personal problems, or we face challenging situations. We're often like Peter, who's looking, uh, he's looking at Christ, and he's walking on the, on the water in the turbulent sea. Then all of a sudden, he sees this big wave coming. He gets his eyes off the Lord and shifts to focus on the wave, and then down we go. And what happens after that is when he looks back and focuses on, on the Lord, that occupation with Christ, then he's able to continue walk on the water, and they walk back to the ship. We just went through that not long ago on Sunday morning. So too often what we're trying to do is God's resources are great, but he needs a little help. Nobody here does that. I know that. But we, we all run into that at some point or another. We have to look at, again and again, that's what God is teaching us, is the sufficiency of our relationship to, to him. So we often add something from our culture to the Bible because the idea of biblical sufficiency and God's omnipotence is sufficient to handle my problems is really threatening. You realize how vulnerable we have to be to really just trust God? Because then we have a battle on our hands. I'm going to trust God and struggle with my sin nature. That's a battle. A battle is not the Holy Spirit's going to do it for you. 
He does about it. And that was what was the problem was with victorious life views of Christianity. Just let go and let God. It didn't work. And it does, it's not biblical. Because with the power of the Holy Spirit, He helps us, but, and the battle is the Lord's, but we've got to do what? We've got to pick up the, the sword of the Spirit. We've got to hold up the shield of faith. We have to put on the full armor of God. It's a struggle. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. He talks about the fact that this is a war. It's a struggle. It's not a piece of cake. We're not dancing through the daisy fields. It is a battle against our own sin nature day in and day out. And what we've got today is a generation of wimps, spiritual wimps who don't want to battle their sin nature. And so as soon as things really get bad and we have to struggle with the fact that my sin nature is seriously and significantly tempted in certain unpleasant directions, that we want to look for somebody else to blame, that's what Adam did, or we want to look for some other way to make it go away. And we live in a culture today that's going to provide it for us. And you've heard me talk many times about the dangers of psychology today. What that is is some some promotion of it's usually camouflaged with a lot of Bible verses that are taken out of context. I remember I went, I lived through two major, at least two major battles when I was in seminary in the 70s and in the 80s. One was over the, the battle of inerrancy. But see, the corollary to the inerrancy of Scripture, if the Bible really is God's Word, then the Bible really is sufficient. That's the second battle. That means it's sufficient in the area of every temptation in our life. Some people struggle with temptations to depression. Some people struggle with other forms of mental attitude sins that are are deep uh, uh, mental struggles. Other people have other struggles that relate to their own bodies. Some, people, some of that's related to sexual temptation, whether it's same-sex tech, uh, uh, temptation or whether it's heterosexual temptation. They, they, they struggle with that, and they think, I just need a pill. And, and we've become a pill-oriented society. And I have wrestled with this for years. I saw this in the 70s as uh, Christian psychology got more and more of a foothold in, in the seminaries and in the churches. And I remember hearing pastors that would say, well, I went through seminary and I learned the Bible, but now I need to go get a degree in psychology so I can help people. Don't you believe in God? God says he's our helper. Yahweh, you're right. He's the one who helps us. He's the one who sustains us. Don't you believe in God? Why do you have to go back and study Freud and Maslow and Jung and all of these psychologists and then try to work your way through all of their writings and pull out a few uh, universal principles that they borrowed originally. They were stolen from the Bible. That's like saying there are some good things. There's some establishment truth in the Quran. Well, you want to go through the Quran and find them? You'll pick up a lot of garbage along the way if you can isolate those principles. How about the Bhagavad Gita? That'll bless your heart every morning. Just get up and spend 10 minutes reading the Bhagavad Gita. Why would you read garbage in order to find a few elements of truth? And so for years I have railed against the fact that we've gone to psychology to sustain us. We've gone to sociology now. That's been going on since since really the 70s as well because because the Word of God isn't enough to build churches. 
Remember, Jesus said, I'll build my church. Peter, you go feed the flock. But what we do today is we say the pastor is going to build a church and the Sunday school teachers are going to feed the flock. That's not what the Scripture says. So, because we don't trust in the sufficiency of God's grace anymore to provide the hearers and to provide the resources. And, and, and so you have churches trying to add to that all, all, all the time. Well, one of the big areas of, that it's an issue has been a question for a lot of people for a lot of years has been the role of medication in Christianity. And I've said for years that I suspect that the problem is that, that, that we don't understand that this really isn't a solution. But what about, and the two biggies are, what about bipolar and what about schizophrenia? Now, I know there are people who listen to me, and there have been people in the congregation who have children, uh, who have family members who are either schizophrenic, they've been diagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar. What I'm suggesting here is that there is a wealth of literature that, show, that is showing that, that the accepted viewpoint and, and modern psychiatry is completely fraudulent. And, and I don't dis, I, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to believe that from the first point because most of science is, is fraudulent because when you're starting your knowledge foundation on something other than the Word of God, you can't arrive at truth. And most of modern society since the mid 1850s with Darwin and then Freud and, um, and, and Herbert Spencer and then and Karl Marx, they're trying to build a culture that can work apart from God. And those men define modern American history. So, of course, it's influenced medicine. So there's a chapter in this book, State of the American Mind, called The Anatomy of an Epidemic, written by Robert Whitaker. It's called Anatomy of an Epidemic. He's written a book by that topic. Now, I think he's right. That's my opinion. But if you are... If you're taking any kind of antidepressant, if you're taking any kind of, of antipsychotic medication or you know someone that is or you may as a parent uh, have a, hyper, a really active kid, not, I'm not going to use the word hyperactive, I'm not going to legitimize it. You just have a kid that's energetic. You need to give him more attention. The solution is you become more of a parent and you become more of a disciplinarian. Uh, the solution is not that you drug him. In fact, the number of... Uh, of adults and children that have been put on these anti or, or these these uh, drugs to control ADHD has gone up like ten times in the last few years. This is insane, absolutely insane. There was a book Gene Brown gave me the book uh, 15, 17, 18 years ago called Toxic Psychology, Toxic Psychiatry, I think it was, and this was a head psychiatrist. In, in the New York City area, had been practicing in psychiatry, not a Christian, just a doctor. And he was putting out all kinds of evidence then to show that, that what happened when you took these drugs is it rewired your brain. And to get your brain off of those drugs uh, might be impossible, and it might even contribute to the fact that things are just going to get worse for you. Okay, now I just want to read some quotes from this guy. You need to investigate both sides of this if you're considering these options. I'm not saying, I'm not telling people forget it because there may be a couple of exceptions, but you need to be educated. Don't just take the word for it that you go to the doctor and you get, get, get drugs. He says, after going through a lot of evidence that I can't possibly regurgitate, 
He says, but the bottom line is that antipsychotics, antidepressants, and the collection of drugs used to treat bipolar disorder worsen outcomes over the long term. Short term, you may see some benefits, but long term, six months, a year, and beyond, makes it worse. Moreover, he says, as researchers have tried to understand why antipsychotics and antidepressants would have this long-term effect, they have theorized it may be because the drugs trigger compensatory adaptations in the brain that oppose their initial intended effects. See, if God invented the brain, God invented all of this. And the issue is that when you start introducing these other chemicals, your brain's trying to go back to normal. And so it's overcompensating. And so it's going to rewire itself. And so this creates what he calls a paradox in outcomes, that drugs that are effective over the short term could worsen outcomes over the long term. He then quotes uh, a man named William Carpenter, who led one of three National Institute of Mental Health-funded studies and he concluded at the one of them that, notice how cautious he is, we raise the possibility that antipsychotic medication may make some schizophrenic patients more vulnerable to relapse than would be the case in the natural course of the illness. Some of the other things he says, uh, antipsychotics worsen long-term outcomes. Then he has, he has data to support all of these things that, uh, that, he, uh, that he specifically st- says. Um, He says the decline in bipolar outcomes in the modern era is also well recognized. In other words, that that the drugs become less and less effective and you get more and more people who are are put on the drugs. He says whereas 75% or so in the pre-lithium area, lithium is a drug used to treat bipolar, before that, 75% or so in the pre-lithium era would remain employed. He said, today, that functional outcome has dropped to around 33%. Bipolar patients today who are regularly put on a cocktail of drugs show signs of cognitive decline, whereas, whereas that didn't used to be the case. And then he quotes a 2007 uh, paper from Nancy Huxley and Ross Baldessarini from Harvard Medical School that summarized this deterioration in outcomes, quote, prognosis for bipolar disorder was once considered relatively favorable, but contemporary findings suggest that disability and poor outcomes are prevalent. See, the real problem is always going to be sin, ultimately. And if you don't deal with the spiritual solution, then your other solutions are probably just going to make things uh, make things right. He says, um, related to the fact that uh, these things, people argue, well, these things are chemical. He says, psychiatric drugs do not fix chemical imbalances, but instead induce them, and the drugs worsen outcomes over the long term. Anyway, and then he goes, here's the data, and he has two pages of data that he puts out there, and it goes on. I'm not going to read more, but you need to read this if you're if, if, if you're on antidepressants, if you're on, on, on any of these antipsychotic drugs, or you know people who are whatever, these need to be entered into cautiously. Because God designed us, we have a problem with our sin nature, and if we don't fix that problem, then it's just going to become more and more exacerbated. And the sin nature is going to cause chemical imbalances eventually because of the mental attitude states that we're in. This is what Paul says in Romans 8.13. says, 
But if you, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now he's talking to believers, and he's not talking about about physical death. He's talking about living a death-like existence. It's going to get miserable. If you as a believer are living according to your sin nature, it's going to just foul things up and things are going to get worse. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, so when your body is tempting you in certain ways, you have to use the Word of God to counter that. Is that easy? No. But we have God the Holy Spirit, and we have the Word of God, and we have to be trained by these things, just as Jesus was trained by the things that he suffered, according to Hebrews chapter 2. We have to put to death the deeds of the body, and we will live. In Romans 6.11, Paul says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. We have to think, we have to adopt a battle mentality. We have to be tough between the ears with relation to our sin nature. That's our enemy. Too often we coddle it. We say, well, I'll go this far, but I won't go that far. Is that how you treat, is, is that how the Allies treated the Nazis in World War II? That's how we're treating the Iranians today. And guess what we expect? We expect the nuclear option. That's going to get really bad. You know, we, you don't compromise or coddle with an enemy. You try to destroy the enemy in battle. And the Word of God gives us those battle tools. Uh, you, he says, Reckon yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. He doesn't say some of the time, most of the time, in some areas of lust. He says, period, over and out, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't you know whom, that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one, slaves, whom you obey, whom you obey, whether sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. And what's happening in Israel at this time in 1 Samuel 4? They are giving themselves over to the syncretism, the ecumenicalism, the false religion, the paganism of the Canaanites, and what's happening? It's creating a death-like existence in Israel. They're under the control and the thumb, the dominion of the Philistines, just as most Christians are under the total dominion and control of their sin nature. And every now and then they confess their sins and hope that somehow that gets them out of it. Guess what? The sin nature only gets you in a position where you can go back into the battle. It doesn't remove you from the battle, and it doesn't make the battle easier. Because the more we give in to sin and it creates an entrenched habit pattern, I think it, cre it has certain consequences chemically. And it's it just like sugar. The more you eat sugar, the more it creates certain chemicals, and the more that becomes a, 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 a pleasure or, or any other drug. And, and when things get tough, you just want that little uh, uh, extra dose of, of whatever it is that, that makes you feel good, and so you go right back to it. And, and the issue is you can't compromise like that at all. So sin leads to death, and obedience leads to righteousness, and those are the options, one or the other. Israel keeps choosing sin, so what God's going to do is he's going to say, you're going to get defeated, and I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to be captured, but I'm still in control, and boy, are the Philistines going to regret it, But because they think they control me, but I'm going to show they don't control me, but I'm going to show you that without me, when you're completely given over to the worldview of the Philistines, and I just remove that restraint, that's like Romans 1, God turning them over to these various stages of sin. God says, when I turn, them, turn you over so that you can just reap the consequences of your carnality, 
you will become so immersed in slavery under the power uh, of the Philistines that finally you're going to want to turn to me. It took them a while. It didn't happen overnight. So anyway, this takes us to basically up to the start of the chapter, and we will get there next time in 1 Samuel 4.1. But we understand what's happening here. This is a literal historical event, but it reveals the spiritual condition of Israel's soul. And this is often a picture. As we look at what happens to Israel corporately in the Old Testament, it's a picture of what often is going on in the dynamics of the soul of the individual believer. And we can't give in. We can't compromise. We can't find a workable solution with evil, with sin, and with the idolatry of the culture around us. God calls us to be holy. Holy doesn't mean morally perfect. He praised David because David was a man after his whole whole heart. Was David sinless? Not at all. I mean, you read through First and Second Samuel, and you just you just see how many times David sinned. But at the end, God doesn't say, "Well, you were just a moral spiritual failure. You're just such a loser, David. Look at all the sins you committed." But see, at the very core of David's soul was a desire to serve God. That even when he blew it and he blew it badly, he still wanted to serve God, not Saul. We're going to see this great contrast between Saul and David. Saul didn't really care whether he was serving God. He was a man after man's heart. David was a man after God's heart. Doesn't mean we sin, we're sinless, but we want to live distinctly unto God. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon uh, the message of your word, the data of Scripture, understanding that these specific incidences are are not just uh, legends, they're not just metaphor, but they happen specifically to teach, to illustrate dynamics of a spiritual relationship of individuals and a culture to you. Father, help us to understand these things, to recognize that we need to battle with our own sin nature. We need to trust in your sufficiency and the power of your word and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to handle the unpleasant aspects of our nasty sin natures. And that we don't, there are no shortcuts to those, to those solutions. The solutions are laid out in your word and it entails a daily battle. And as Paul says, it is a struggle. We wrestle. And these are the metaphors of the spiritual life. And too often we're just so soft in our culture that we've lost this concept of mentally wrestling and struggling with the sin in our own lives. And, Father, we pray that you would give us a victory, give us a focus on your word, intensify and strengthen our positive volition. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.